Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins, joined this week by Equalizer Editor-in-Chief Jeff Kasouf because we have a big piece of news to talk about. We waited. We waited to record this week. This is coming out a tiny bit later than we usually do um, because we wanted to find out what was going to happen with the collective bargaining agreement and preseason, essentially. We're recording this on February 1st, which was scheduled to be the first day of the 2022 NWSL preseason. And guess what, guys? It's happening. They did it. They have ratified, or at least indicated that they will ratify the first CBA in the, the PA says women's soccer history. That sounds right. Um, certainly the first in this country. So I'm just going to read a little bit what came out in the Players Association release, and we will dive into some of the finer points. So just to, you know, the, the release itself tonight, this again was January 31st. The NWSL Players Association ratified the first ever collective bargaining agreement in NWSL history, subject to approval by the NWSL Board of Governors, Players will report to preseason camp with the safety, security, and protections of a collectively bargained contract that sets NWSL on a positive trajectory for the future. Uh, some quotes from uh, PA President Tori Huster, Executive Director Megan Burke, and then they they do some bullet points. Uh, they call it the major wins of the CBA, um, though they do say that they intend to, once it has been fully signed and written off by the Board of Governors, they are actually intending to have it in its entirety up on their website eventually. But from what we have now, um, a 60% increase in minimum salary to $35,000 with 4% year-over-year increases, stepladder increases in 2022 salaries to protect players above the minimum in 2021. I assume this means that just to make sure that everybody benefits from that minimum hike. Um, 401k plan with matching contributions from league commencing in 2023 minimum standard. I think they missed some bullets here, but uh, 401k plan with matching contributions from league and then uh, minimum standards for housing stipends, free agency, free agency is starting in 2023 for players with a minimum of six service years, free agency starting in 2024 for five service years, restricted free agency, which we can talk about that a little bit, starting in 2024 for players with three service years. This one's a big one, I think. Four weeks severance pay plus 30 days housing and health insurance for waived players. Um, and then the the player safety stuff, some of this is are things that we're not going to be probably party to the details, but seems like a, a, a really big step forward. They want... I, I assume when they say robust workers comp coverage, that means more than what they had prior um, up to six months paid mental health leave, eight weeks paid parental leave, whether it's birth or adoption, clean private nursing facilities for parents, professional minimum staffing standards for healthcare professionals. Uh, this one's a little bit shady. No playing on fields that require substantial com- conversion of dimensions of a soccer field. Uh, that seems like a little bit of a dig at some of the baseball fields. And then basically, you know, they they kick it back over to the Board of Governors and say, you know, we have agreed. Uh, the indicator from the Board of Governors side is that the league social media did post uh, a similar release themselves later that evening, meaning that I it would be, I think, shocking at this point, should this not be fully ratified from both sides. This is an agreement, I think, as I understand it. So lots of info there. Um, oh, yes. And also, you can see the full details of everything on the Equalizer written site, and we'll be keeping uh, covering this throughout the next couple of weeks. But but Jeff, give me your uh, your big impressions here. Well, maybe the first question is from from your perspective on Monday. I, I know that I saw 
you know, team social media was acting like full speed ahead. We saw over the weekend players report to market and get their entry physicals. Um, did you think it was happening or did what, what, what was the temperature that, that you were kind of taking in maybe the 48 hours before this was announced? Yeah, I'd say it was a, a bit quiet. Um, I, I guess intentionally so perhaps, you know, in terms of, of where things were going. I mean, the last we heard from anybody officially anyway, and publicly was um, the implicit stance that a player strike loomed, right? I think uh, there was the report. I, I don't think the PA in its statement last week actually said it, but right. uh, the, the message was clear in terms of where they stood of, of whether preseason would start on time without a CBA. So you know, I think everybody had kind of at that point certainly buckled up for a bumpy ride, perhaps. Um, you're right, though. There were some some little indicators. I mean, it had gone quiet. And I think um, the only thing that I saw in my inbox, which is often much too full, uh, was San Diego was actually one of the teams that had sent out a Monday release scheduling uh, some player media availability for later in the week, which I thought mm-hmm. was, you know, an interesting one. And, and one of those things where you say, you know, huh. But, but not necessarily an indicator of anything firm. But um, yeah, I think, you know, overall, obviously, I think everybody involved probably happy to see that uh, Monday night brought news of an agreement and not a, a strike or a disagreement. Because I think that the, the thing here was, um, you know, a strike would have indicated really a, a fundamental disagreement on some big items. Right. I mean, you know, after over a year's work, from every, every opinion, you know, everybody I spoke with last week and in the weeks building up, you know, you, you don't just have, I think a good point made to me was by somebody is it's, this is not like an all or nothing. Like if we got to a strike, it wasn't like uh, nothing's agreed upon. Right. I mean, a lot of these things were in place, you know, they, they trickle in whatever, something agreed to in September, something agreed to in November, but Obviously, there were still some some big items, some language of some big items, maybe that that wasn't were not agreed to. Um, so I think that would have been an indication that that there were some some real big problems there. Um, but the fact that you know there was enough movement to to get to a point of agreement, uh, I think is a positive. And and overall, you know, a first agreement. Um, th- there's always only one first time, and right. you know, I think that makes for a unique situation, a lot of these comparatives that we have of MLS for a direct sort of sport to sport comparison or in inter-sport comparison, but some of these other leagues in the U S which are well-established and have, you know, plenty of CBAs under their belt. These are all renegotiations where you're fixing problems that maybe were unintentionally created by a, a previous CBA. In this case, you're fixing problems that, that never had any sort of, governance in this situation. So um, I I think all things considered, this one's unique and, um, you know, I I think reasons to be optimistic and we'll see where, where everybody feels about that, how everybody feels about that in a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, right? That we had heard that the players were willing to force the issue, but we also heard that a lot of things fundamentally in principle had kind of been agreed on and they were just figuring out terms. Um, Obviously, optics-wise, uh, much better to get it done. And, and to a certain extent, you know, for the Players Association as well, um, strikes are hard. And it it becomes uh, a situation of, of having to keep a group organized and keep communication really strong, both to the public and internally. And I, I wonder, you know, if 
in this last week, I guess, or so, right? Tuesday, Tuesday to Tuesday, that maybe they sat down and they said, okay, we're close enough. Let's really just get this done um, because it's better for all involved that everything start on time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and I, I think, oh, sorry, I, I think leverage too is, is an interesting one too, because you'd say, well, players have that, but you know, I really do think that was sort of a push here that, yeah. you know, nobody would want, I think the optics were the thing, but in terms of like an actual work stoppage, I know there are people, I know very well, there are people in the league who disagree with me here, but like, I think you really had another three months here because yeah. I think the the team, the level of interest in the challenge cup really varies across the league. Yes, that is and true. Yeah. So the regular season is still three months away. So the idea of a work stoppage. You think was, it would have had to drag on to actually right. be effective. Is that kind it, of what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the idea that a work stoppage now creates a massive problem. I mean, optics. Yes. Right. But you know, missing a regular season game still being three months out and that really being the the crux of like okay now we're talking about significant uh, events which are you know costing money and and right you know, i think i think that um the idea of missing a challenge cup potentially where you might say okay there's leverage for players here to to create this work stoppage and get something done i'm not saying you know that this is uniform across the league but I don't know that the, cha- I think the challenge cup was something that could have been sacrificed if we really had a problem here. I'm glad we didn't, obviously, I think everybody is, but right. um, I'm not sure that we were in a place where, you know, um, something had to get done or, okay, now we're losing X amount of money per day as this goes on. Well, sure. And I mean, the other thing that happens with a strike is the players are also not getting paid. So there's financial strain on both sides. Right. Mm. And so that's as another, I mean, I think anybody who is understands the history of strikes in this country understands that a lot of times when you go down that road, you, the, the labor force is not always the side that wins. And in fact, sometimes strikes end with the labor force being the one making the final concessions because they can no longer afford uh, a work stoppage. And it's a large, I mean, this is a large group of people, right. Who have different means and different circumstances. And I, again, considering that they were close, I understand trying to avoid this. Like you said, cause if you're playing a waiting game with ownership, cause there is an actual contentious issue or two. Um, I'm not sure that ownership doesn't have the material leverage there, uh, outside of, like you said, like public support and public opinion. Um, maybe that's a good seg then. I was struck by this once again, looking at some of the things that the Players Association presented. And they presented them as wins as well they should, right? Um, it's This is a hard thing to do. And, and again, it's the first one. Um, was struck again just by, in retrospect, right? The amount of power that owners were operating under here. You know, it's like everything's a concession when the status quo is you having everything, right? Um and and I think that an interesting thing for me, and I, I will say that if there's anything about this agreement that I I'm certainly not worried about it right now, but but does give me some pause for the future is this is a five year deal. And I know that this was something that uh, owners, I think it was floated out there that maybe owners even wanted a six year deal um, getting locked into something based on circumstances, circumstances being that it's the first contract circumstances being what owners had access to before in terms of their kind of locking down player rights and stuff like that. Um, 
do you think this this contract will remain competitive? Is it that feels like a win for the owners for me, I guess, is the term length um, as opposed to maybe like a four year deal where players can respond to the rapidly sort of shifting landscape, especially with with the you know expected growth points in, in the mm-hmm. sport. I don't know. You've been around longer than I have, Jeff. Do you think that I'm a little bit then too too excited about the future by saying that that this is a missed opportunity in in uh, leverage, or do you think that this the steady growth baked in is enough? Well, I think we should be excited, but uh, you know, I, I think um, I mean I had sourcing last week that that owners were looking at or hoping for six or more years okay. for the term. Yeah. So you know, I think five um, is a clear you know a, a clear compromise. middle ground there. Yeah. Then yeah. Um, but you know, I think it leaves. I think I think the timing leaves things in an interesting place because that will be this. We should say this will run through the end of 2026, the end of the 2026 season. So mm-hmm. as we call it, five years. But that so that will be roughly a few months after this ma- massive co-hosted Men's World Cup in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, mm-hmm. and you know, very roughly a few months before a 2027 women's world cup mm-hmm. um how that affects anybody i think it's it's impossible to say here in right. 2022 but you know comparatively i think you'd look at um mls just renegotiated several times on, on a cba that um you know various concessions but brings them into 2027 mm-hmm. so they are locked in through and past this world cup which maybe you could say more directly impacts them as a men's world cup whereas mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the women's side here, the NWSL is going to be renegotiating basically right in that world cup, which I think will be an interesting, you know, sort of time because you start those renegotiations as we see maybe a year beforehand. And, and so they'll be doing it right in and through that, that men's world cup and ahead of a women. So I think in that sense, you know, again, a little bit too early to tell, but at least allows you to certainly, you'll know, like, how that men's world cup has affected the sport at large, which if you talk to anybody right now, I think even, you know, as the women's game goes, the fact that it's in the U S it'll be the largest ever, all of these things that um, there is an expectation that it'll have this knock on effect. And I think that's where a lot of this optimism comes, you know, coupled with the optimism of a growing women's soccer scene period. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think that adds to it. So I think that's where, you know, a rightful optimism comes, but I do think that, um, you know, I think this is fair in some ways in terms of you always, I think we have to say up front for anybody, I think a lot of people listening, you know, there's probably quite a bit of player support as there should be. And, and that creates this kind of public sphere of a very pro player. Um, and I, I think that you look at this and, you have to understand that there's going to be a middle ground. It's a negotiation. I mean, the, right, the very yeah. Yeah. dictionary definition. So I think the idea that there's a baked in um, year over year, I almost call this like an inflation raise. I mean, you see this in like big corporate settings, a 4% raise year over year. Right. Because like, that's just sort of reflecting yeah. raising every right. Just the, yeah. So, so I think in okay. that sense that there's this 4% year over year as, as, a way to sort of balance things at the very least that make sure that things uh, keep advancing in some regard. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you get toward 2026 and things blow up as expected. Well, you know, I think the next negotiation becomes a much more serious, we need a bigger jump here, but 
you know, I think if you look at this as each party, players get a guaranteed raise each year in that sense. Owners are committing to some raise without, um, I think if you're on the owner side here, you're saying, okay, look, I understand that, you know, we all hope for this massive jump in, in the sports Mm -hmm. uh, financial means, but this is in some ways a hypothetical. So, you know, this 4% kind of, kind of guarantees that. And, and the 60% jump at the start obviously creates that big initial jump. Well, right. And that, I mean, you talk about right over five years, right. 4% jumps plus what they've already made, you know, that gives you to what, like, Oh gosh, math. I mean, it's a lot more than what we were at at 2021 is basically the point where you get to the, the end with the jump that they already made plus the incremental jumps. Um, The minimum will look very different, right. Than, than it did which I, I think, right. If you're starting, you know, yeah. I mean, for me again, no one knows the future, but you're in 2026 and your minimum is 40 grand, you know, that's not a terrible place to be in the context of the history of the league. Right. Hmm. Um, right. So maybe the next question then is, and I don't know the answer to this. I don't know if you've heard anything. I know for me, what the players care about are the minimums as well. They should. And in fact, I, one of the things that they've always been really good about with their messaging and you see it written into some of these terms is it seems like, and and honestly, kudos to them, right? Commend them for this. It seems like they're, they're primarily worried about the rank and file members of the union, meaning those on the, on the salary minimum or, even just thinking about the protections they built in for mothers or for people who are struggling with mental health um, players who have been waived, who, who frequently are players already even on the minimum. And it, you know, you don't get a lot of players cut in the NWSL, but it does happen. And it used to be that teams could just do that. And within 24 hours, a player just had to go. And I think that I, I respect how much here is focused on that, end because that is how you raise standards for everybody. But so we have an idea of minimums, right? And we have an idea of general roster size. Do you have you heard anything about the salary cap? And this is something that I don't even really know. Is that part of a CBA negotiation or is that more just on the ownership side, them getting their books in order? They know that they have these minimums now and then they figure out the salary cap. What do you think happens next there? Right. So I would say, yeah, so we're recording this, you know, something like, uh, I don't know, 12, 14 hours after, after the announcement. So, so definitely if you're listening, just early days, early days for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Equalizersoccer.com will keep updating, you know, in written form and, and I'm sure we'll keep talking about it on this pod as time goes on. But, um, what I did ask about salary cap last night and, Mm -hmm was told that that is at the owner's discretion. Okay. Um, what the, what the player side had really fought for was that minimum roster size, which is 22. So mm-hmm. maintaining the number of jobs, you know, without, you know, not sacrificing the number <laughs> right. of roster spots, not right. Not punishing because, anybody for higher minimums right, by for right, higher yeah. minimums. Exactly. So, yeah. so the salary cap is at the discretion of owners. Now I, I think, that, that's been a question for the past month or so that I've heard from different parties of like, what the heck is it even this year? And right. I don't know if that was held up on the CBA, but um, obviously the, the, the minimums jumping is going to inherently raise the cap and, right. and even the stepladder, which is um, right. basically ensuring that if you were, so I will, I'm very glad to read that this will all be published at some point. I've been 
shouting about these types of things. So yeah, looking yeah. forward to that document being published. But so this is not an exact thing, but my right. understanding is the stepladder is essentially, I don't know if it will be like for like, but if you were 5,000 above the minimum last year, now the minimum has jumped 60%, you will be X amount above the minimum this year, whether that's right. that with the goal ultimately being that if you yeah. were making, I mean, they talked about this, the PA was, was very open about this, right. About what players were on the minimum and what players were around that 33 K salary, right. Which mm-hmm. was above the minimum. Um, you know, you don't want those players to technically get a raise, but suddenly they're on minimum contracts now. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, if you just look at those, I mean, inherently a 60% jump in the minimum, um, you know, team salary cap in 2021 was 68, roughly six, 680,000. Yeah. So, you know, I think you've got to assume about a 60% jump there, at least just for, you know, this is ballpark, but just for the fact of what we're talking about. So, you know, that's putting you over a million for, for a salary cap potentially. Um, So we'll see what that is. I mean, traditionally these don't have a great history of coming out in a timely manner. I'm looking at last year's and we got the official word. Um, Actually, I reported this on May 11th. I don't Mm -hmm. think we even got the official word on May 11th. I just had to keep bothering people that the season was underway and we, we should get these answers. So, you know, hopefully we get them in something that's got a February date on it, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So cap goes up, certainly minimum goes up the step ladder. You know, I I think that um, I'll, I'll be interested to see some of these finer details, which honestly, I don't have a ton of answers to yet, even free agency, which I think if you're wondering, like the two big things we heard from the player side, from executive director, Megan Burke, from folks like Tori Houston and others through the last year, let's call it was, you know, among many finer details, as you said, Claire, but like minimum salaries looking out for, for that end of the roster, which is a significant portion of the league. And mm-hmm. then some sort of free agency. Well, and- yeah. I mean, let's, let's jump into free agency a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think here's my thought. Here's why I think the players got what they wanted here. And I do think that if you look at, I look at this contract, I think that the free agency element and people talked about this, right? That it took 20 years for MLS to get free agency, the free agency part of of this deal as explained, right? Just in bullet points, right? Was something that reflects the era and not the fact that it's the first contract. And I think that that is a big positive. This is a free agency construct that understands that it's 2022. Other leagues have this. Um, we don't have to wait however many years to make this a thing. However, and, and I'm sure you're keenly aware of this too, for anybody who's interested in, in American sports specifically is when you do have uh, salary caps you have single right single entity structures. You have salary caps. Part of the bet that owners can make on free agency is that not everybody is going to be able to afford to have everybody, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. even though they they've made these concessions on free agency, which I think are very fair, if you look at the current WNBA, um, the current WNBA contract that they only just ratified in 2019, um, theirs is slightly lower on unrestricted free agency. They they have five years service. Um, but the three years restricted, that's the same as WNBA and then four years being eligible, um, or the, the, right, the middle the middle tier being eligible in 2024. Um, I think that that feels very modern to me, which is great, mm-hmm. but money's yeah, always going to be an issue, right? What's that? 
money's always going to be an issue there. Well, I'm interested in some of the finer details here. I mean, we'll, we'll figure them out, but you know, six years of service, I'm curious. I don't know if you know if that's, is that consecutive, consecutive or cumulative? Right. Yeah, um, right. I, I would assume cumulative would make sense, but um, you know, if somebody goes away for a year and comes back and has mostly been in the league, but um, yeah, I, I think the, you know, I think an interesting thing to follow here. And, and again, one of these things that this is not a cop-out, but you just don't know until you see it. And we're not going to see it until, I mean, free agency starts 2023. So we'll get mm-hmm. our first taste of it in a year. Um, you know, we might not really know the effects for a couple years or more, but, you know, free agency gives players, and I, I'm curious, you know, six years of service, they're not going to be a lot of people who qualify for that at the start, but um, the, it gives a lot of people the freedom potentially, let's say potentially to choose where they want to play, which is a big thing and has been a big complaint for players with the single entity structure being traded on a whim, right. not having a say. So th- there's a, there's a win there for players. How many players get it, you know, are, are eligible. We'll see, but there's also from a money perspective, if we're, you know, somebody's looking at this as a, as a fan, maybe saying, okay, well now players can go get what they're worth in free agency as well. If they're eligible you know, that I think is going to really apply to that sort of 1% or 5%. Right. I don't know that the money aspect of is really going to apply to that sort of six plus on the roster, you know, six to 18 on the roster type of person. It might allow them to play where they want to play. Right. But I don't think they're going to say, I'm going to leave City X and and go somewhere else for double the salary. So, right. Um, you know, I think there's keeping realistic ideas in in that as we sort of get into this free agency. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Right. But I think obviously from where we started, just having the ability to take meetings with other teams or, or Mm -hmm. test where you would like to be right. Without having to, to force trades and and trades aren't going anywhere. Right. Like that will still be a part of the, a part of the league, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of that is just letting players control their own destiny and figure out what works best for them. I mean, we've seen, we've seen in other CBAs as well, you know, it's not always going to be about the money. We see players in men's leagues too um, take team friendly deals all the time, right? Because they have a place where they want to be. But I think when you talk about elements of here, here's maybe the, the crux of that though, is after a year where player safety was called into question, um, that element of, of control and uh, ability to go somewhere else, even if you don't make more money or even theoretically make less, um, is a big part. Because I think that when we talked about player safety and the rights system, if you were in an abusive situation, you couldn't leave. And I think that, you know, do I love that that's the terms that we're talking about this? No, but is it a reality of 2021? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Right. And I think, you know, obviously, um, well, I was going to say that is the extreme, but also it it proved far too prevalent over the past year as as we, you know, came to learn of different situations. So while it is the extreme and it it was, it was terribly prevalent. It was like, it was like half the league. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, half the, half the league at, you know, half the active teams last year with with firings for cause. So, um, you know, I think, on the assumption and maybe hope that, that that all is being cleaned up in, in everything that's happening. Right. These investigations, which are, are my understanding nowhere near finished right. and won't be anytime soon, but 
you know, on the assumption that that extreme problem gets cleaned up, then, then maybe talking less about abusive situation, which, which is about a lot more than free agency, obviously, but even just like, I don't like it here. I don't like this coach. I don't like right. this setup, right. you know, more of a, a day-to-day type of workplace problem than right. uh, extreme sort of uh, yes, right. people problem. So yeah, exactly. Exactly to your point. Um, yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's, you know, I think this was something that, uh, yeah, Al Averbush, she, she made a little statement last night as, as well. She should, cause she's been very involved. Obviously she founded the players association. She was its first president. Um, I do think she was consulted on management side once she joined Gotham's front office. Um, she talked a little bit about, and this is hard because a lot of this is positioning it's PR, it's a lot of different things. We, as we know, what what's said in, in front of in front of doors and behind closed doors is different sometimes. But um, the whole goal, and, and this has always been the players' association's position, is if we get some of this stuff figured out, and players have a little bit more agency to be where they want to be, everybody wins, right? Like good ownership wins. You know, uh, thoughtful management wins. Player wins. You get a better product on TV. Um, it doesn't have to be it, the, the NWSL has, has moved itself into this weird situation where sometimes when good things happen, it feels like the league has lost a battle of some kind. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. And so I think that's maybe another positive of getting this done without a work stoppage is there's always going to be tension between labor and ownership 100% always. That's just part of being alive in a capitalistic system. But I know for me, it seems like the way forward has to be in like shared wins, right? Rather than here's this cool thing that's happening on the field, or here's this cool thing happening with these players and everybody's really mad at ownership all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think, uh, Yael's uh, use of that as as sort of a symbiotic relationship um, and not not an owners versus players thing is is a a good way to put it. And I think you know certainly from a fan perspective and, and maybe in media it, it can kind of shake out that way. And and you know, look things do get ugly. I mean I, I think we should expect that at some point and, and maybe they have already in some way if you know the turmoil of the past year obviously, but. Um, things can get ugly. And we see that in other sports. I mean, MLB is in a lockout right now. Right. I think to my, I'm, I'm speaking off the cuff, but I'm 99% positive that every other of the, if you want to say the four major leagues for the men's side, anyway, in this country have had lockouts or strikes mm-hmm. and, and most of them within the last 15 years, I think is accurate. Right. Um, so, I mean, these things will happen. And, and I think we can expect that, at some point they could happen and that just is, is part of it, but that is a sort of extreme, you know, something, something that needs to happen at that point or, or one party feels that, but I think certainly um, I, I think there is more of a, a, an element of working together um, between owners, players, league and players, let's say, than um, than maybe is, is traditionally depicted. Right. Um, okay. Well then next question. And I don't know, this is, this is a question that doesn't probably have a real answer, but it's one that I'm curious about and am kind of watching this year and, and throughout the next couple of years is, uh, 
you have some you have owner ownership is a very wide <laughs> it's a very wide uh term right we have owners that have been in the league from its beginning we have owners that have just come in we have owners with a variety of different abilities to spend and quite frankly lose money on these teams um do you think the 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 ratification of this CBA and it's kind of a wild question considering how um you know not exorbitant any of these things are but do you think that every team is ready for this do you think every team can match these standards with the same ownership structure that they ha- currently have? Or do you think that we might have to see some shakeups in, in ownership groups in order to be able to, to keep up with this? Uh, no, no to the first part, which okay. is to say that I think that, that this will bring some changes. I, yeah. I don't think that it means tomorrow, but right. um, you know, if you look at, I think anyone paying attention and, and I think that that is, you know, traditionally not, not enough people. So it's, it's worth sort of spelling out in brief of like um, this, I would say the past three years, there's been a real push. Um, let's call it a few years, a real push to raise minimum standards. Mm-hmm. And that has, you look at some of the influx of ownership in this, this league, I wouldn't even say influx of ownership because in a lot of cases, as we've learned, it's just, quote unquote investment and, and in some of these structures where there's dozens of people involved with some right. of these teams, there's, there's not even equity. There's not even right. hard cash. It's, it's just a way of uh, an investment of assets that might not necessarily be cash, but a lot of these different moves that have been created are not necessarily out of uh, desire per se of, of wanting to do this Um let let me be clear on that of wanting to have another partner just because reasons that, you know, the the need for them was really the thing there was a need to bring in someone with a a greater net worth because those minimum standards and what was needed for a net worth were going up. There was a need for more cash flow because minimum standards that needed to be invested in like training facilities, stadiums, all of these things that we maybe don't even see every day that cost money. um, Somebody needed to pay for those. And, the league in their press release about this first CBA on Monday night said, and I'll read it, uh, quote, so uh, the primary terms of the CBA, which are summarized here and are projected to require an additional incremental investment by NWSL owners of nearly $100 million. So that's, I read that as cumulative between what's currently 12 teams and Mm -hmm. over five years. So that's a hundred million divided by 12 over five years. You know, that's not a, Massive jump maybe, but that is several million dollars more per year, I would say, from each team. And I don't think that that's necessarily something that um, in the current structure that every single team in this league is equipped to handle. And that's not a surprise either because we know um, there are teams and, you know, I think you look at different teams and Washington brought on all these owners. Um, L.A. is a new team and wanted to structure it that way. So I don't know that we can put them in that category. Chicago brought on this huge ownership group, investment group, let's say. Um, you know, these are teams that did that in anticipation. O.L. Rain is called O.L. Rain because that was looking ahead to uh, really to a moment like this where, you know, more cash flow, more ownership was needed to make a move like going to Lumen Field, which is a, a right. seven-figure investment. So, um, you know, I think that those terms 
those teams made all those moves in anticipation of something like this. But I still think that there are teams um, among maybe some that's listed there and, and even some that are not listed that, you know, might not necessarily be ready for that. And I think you couple that with, um, and I don't want to derail us here, but just as an element of that conversation is we still don't have a resolution in Washington, which is maddening, yeah, right. but the valuation there at 35 million, yes. if that's what it sells for, even if it goes for the 25 million or somewhere in between, again, like the benchmark here, oil rain at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, um, you know, or sorry, 2019 and a 20, um, beginning of 20 selling for a valuation of just under 4 million Kansas city. Um, as I've been able to confirm joining for a valuation of 5 million. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at a five X valuation at minimum there of the last known figures on a, on a team. Right. Um, I think that there will be owners who look around and look at a commitment needed going forward combined with, the new valuation of teams, which, um, you know, many owners who have lost so much money through the years had a five X type of valuation. If everybody could get that, who knows, but that would probably make up for a significant amount of losses. Sure. Maybe there are people who look around and say, this is a time to sell. Right. And, and maybe there's more people interested in this league now too. So I, I think we'll see some changes certainly through the CBA and maybe even soon in mm-hmm. the CBA. Yeah. I mean, you'd think it would have to, right. Um, yeah. And then maybe, yeah, sort of ripple effect, talking ripple effect, since that's sort of the, the same same thing here. Um, good that season's happening on time, right? We've gotten s- some TV details for 2022. Like we know um, the Challenge Cup final will be on CBS. We, you know, little stuff, it seems like for now, um, a lot of the infrastructures in place are, are going to remain the same in terms of the league, right? Um so Marla Messing was brought in to, and I'm just going to very generally say, fix this, right? Um, big step forward here in, in fixing player relationship by getting this CBA done. What are the next steps, though, to make sure that that growth happens? And this is, this is tied to, um, they threw in there into the CBA a, a possible uh, royalty share, right? Um should the league be profitable in upcoming years? Um, how, um, I mean, this is like the million dollar question is that now we're moving into having to do the work to make that possible. Um, obviously they're not going to be renegotiating terms with CBS for a while. It's not going to be that so much, but we've talked about investment in the broadcast. We don't, we don't know exactly what that's going to look for. You know, I mean, I think maybe, maybe the actual question is, when you talk about influx of cash, what are some of the other areas that to your mind, you say in order for this to have the growth, the expected projected growth, we need an influx of cash in this direction as well. Yeah, I I do think the, um, I think the note about that revenue sharing potentially Mm -hmm. in in years three, four, and five, and, and with the, the caveat that should the league be profitable, I think that's one of those where, you know, you probably look at it as a win for the players because it's there. And I think if you're an owner, you're looking at that saying, yeah, we'll throw it in because um, as much as everybody this to grow and, and including myself, like that seems like a far-fetched idea because year three of this, if we're going by years is, is basically, you know, it starts now and we're counting 22. So right. year three of this is 2024. 
to for the league at large to be profitable when if you talk to anybody around the league and look this is classic whether sports leagues or not i mean uh, you know the company says we're losing money the players or the employees say look at all this money you're making you know this is profit versus revenue etc but I, I think that's really optimistic to think that the league's going to be profitable mm-hmm. at that point um but yeah I, you know the the cbs deal was i guess quietly i don't know if that was um malicious in any way but just quietly extended because of the pandemic. It was originally right. a three-year deal with Twitch and CBS. Those, those both extended. So that's end of 2023. So the, which is not that far away, but yeah, so this, that's true. you know, the, the media rights deal will come up um, again, obviously within the CBA. I mean, depending on what they do, it could come up twice, I guess, right. in a five-year deal here. Um, but I think there's room for growth there um, in our, you know, a stream happy world. You look at players like Amazon and some others who are aggressively spending money on all sorts of things. And, mm-hmm. you know, honestly, you look around and respect, you know, with respect to some other sporting entities, I look at some deals that they got, maybe not in the the actual cash they got for it, but the the visibility they get. Right. And you say, hmm, you know, if they can get that, why isn't the NWSL getting a bit more on that front? So right. I, I think that's one element sponsorship obviously one and and that is i think there's been you know there's been a good amount of growth there we don't have exact details of how much money is coming from those but we have seen the addition of some big corporations mm-hmm. um so th- there's an assumption there that there's a, a decent amount of money being spent um you know and i think you look at you know to your question of like well where else is there um the first thing that comes to mind this is not the only thing but I keep thinking about where does this league need to grow? And yes, there's, there's TV viewership and all that. Lisa Baird in her time, you know, which albeit brief, I guess she spoke even as recently as that August call, which was basically in response to the Richie Burke situation. Mm-hmm. Um, she was talking about the need and, and the direct quote I don't have in front of me, but she said almost verbatim here, we need to put more butts in the seats. Right. And the pandemic has obviously affected that. But if you look at attendance mm-hmm. and, you know, how attendance potentially affects TV, because I do think there's some, some harmony there in terms of, you know, the, the implicit value on a product when there's an empty stadium versus a packed stadium, all these things. I think attendance is a place, especially in some specific markets, that really needs to improve. And you look at some different leagues have a way, you know, this is still a league where gate receipts are a big source of revenue because the the TV deals are not robust. Some other leagues have the benefit of major TV deals that make money. This is a league where, you know, you look at like a Washington that lost one game because of a I don't know, a relationship problem, let's call it, and a screw up at Segra Field and lost another game because of a COVID forfeit. Those are two games. That That's two games. That's like a million dollars in gate receipts for them right. playing, if they're playing at Audi Field. So, right. you know, that's a the, the money there. You know, if, if LA, if Angel City has sold, as they say, they've sold 13,000 season tickets in full, you know, that is a major piece. O.L. Rain moving to Lumen Field, if they can get 10,000 there versus the, 
you know, what they were getting in Tacoma and, and obviously rent is different. So your, your expenses go up, but I think that's the area for a lot of these teams like Gotham, um, Orlando is a place where things need to get sorted out with that. I, I think attendance is a big element, at least to revenue. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, right. And, and you would think if, right, you revenue shares go up and then, that can be invested back into other things, um, which, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I think we all know, or maybe we don't uh, just cause it's, it is now 2022, you know, time, time passes, but uh, the NWSL lost a lot of attendance momentum. It felt like over the pandemic, right. 2019, everyone was seeing these, mm-hmm. these highs and, and by highs, I'm just talking about averaging 5,000 people a game. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they lost, I mean, there are teams that lost that there are teams that did not average 5k in, in 2021, which makes perfect sense considering where we were with the pandemic. And certainly mm-hmm. some of these markets where people are a little bit more cautious, but also just, I do think market share was lost. Um, and right. then obviously all the other off the field turmoil doesn't help with that either. No. And I think, I think Portland, I mean, anecdotally we're seeing in Portland, I mean, you know, quite a bit of unhappy fans talking about canceled membership, right. You know, their average, obviously COVID a factor is down, but you know, I I think I'm really curious to see what attendance looks like in port. I mean, it's not going to drop off the map, No, but you know, the idea of it being at capacity, I think, uh, assuming that it can be based on protocols, you know, will be a big question. And then, um, you know, there's some other, other markets too. Kansas city building a stadium. So I think there's a lot to be seen reason to, to believe in some optimism, but mm-hmm. there's a lot to figure out there. Yeah. And maybe this is a good way to sort of close out is, um, is one step of many. And I think that fans are still going to be very engaged about progress in different areas. And obviously we'll keep reporting on that as well, but, um, I think that there are lessons to be learned from 2021 that the league should never quote unquote move on from. Right. I think that you have to use that part of your history to do better in the future, but getting this CBA done. And eventually when they get the Washington ownership thing figured out, it feels like steps towards the next stage. And I think that the league was very much, needing needing that right we can talk about soccer we can talk about these teams we can get excited for california expansion um i'm sure for other possible expansion groups they're happy to have this done too because then they can sort of look at oh do we want to buy in you know um do you feel i mean i think you're you're a good person to talk to about this because you you've seen the incremental growth and you've seen some of the stalling of growth over the years and we're going into year 10 or I mean, it's not really year 10 and it's not really season 10 either, but we'll go for it. We're going with 10. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're full Steve ahead on 10 and I'm I'll, with I'll, you I'll, on I'll, that. Yeah. Um, but we've gone past, is this league going to live right now? I think the question is, does this league remain competitive globally does it remain a good product does it remain a good job for people to have that they want to because as we know many almost all of the player pool are are players who have upward mobility in other ways coming off of you know full college scholarships and that sort of thing um do you feel optimistic there that this will continue to stay competitive with with other options for players both playing and not Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I think it's worth noting too, and not as a doom and gloom, but I don't think it, I don't think people should get complacent on the survival, the survival element. I mean, not, not any reason to suggest that that's the case of, of that there's anything negative there, but I I think it's just worth like a note that, you know, and I think this CBA in maybe, maybe it's just worth pointing out that if something feels slightly modest, we were saying that in relation to like the 4% yearly increase, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a way of all parties saying, you know, we can't commit to this massive sort of jump without potentially putting the league in jeopardy because we don't have more revenue or more profit in hand. So, uh, but I don't, I think it's worth not getting complacent there, but um, to to the bigger question, because I, you know, I don't think that's an imminent threat by any means Um, staying competitive. I mean, look, yes, it will stay competitive. Um, The idea that it's the best league in the world or the most competitive league in the world, I think is a more accurate way to put it. Mm-hmm. I think it is the most competitive league in the world in the sense of one through 12 now, and even mm-hmm. these expansion teams looking pretty good um, being, you know, any given Sunday, so to speak that, that, you know, you can show up and, and lose a game. Um, I think that's true. And I think that'll remain the case. You know, does that mean that the league will not lose players to Europe to Mexico, even to right. some other leagues. No, I mean, players, you know, increasingly, especially in a global market where there are some options, there are at least teams in these other leagues, you know, Tigres is spending money. I don't know mm-hmm. if the bottom end of Mexico is spending a lot of money. No, but you know, there are teams in these other leagues that will spend money. Um, you know, I think that always means there's going to be player migration. You, mm-hmm. you can't prevent that. Um, but I do think that, you know, in general terms, it is set up, it should be set up for the NWSL to remain in that conversation. There will always be a debate whether it is the mm-hmm. league. Um, but but I don't think that that should be a matter of complacency. I mean, I've talked about this. I've tweeted about this pretty frequently over the past month, I think. I don't know if the NWSL, if ownership and league front office, so to speak, which is in a sort of temporary state, but I don't know if they recognize the threat in their own backyard that is Mexico. Right. You know, I think I think this conversation often circulates around Europe and some of the bigger European leagues and clubs, and maybe as it should. But I think Mexico is is something that needs to be, and I needs to be kept on that. And yeah. and not even as like a, oh we're scared of it. I mean, be proactive if you right. want to be schedule schedule games right like schedule some, games yeah, right. I mean, we don't have. I don't, I don't want to misspeak here, but I don't, I don't have, I've seen very few indications that the NWSL is aware of a Spanish speaking market. Mm, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I mean, there's no, there's been a, there's been some, some. The Houston dash have done stuff. (laughs) Yes. The the dash have done stuff at a league level. Right. So, I mean, that's an element where, okay, we want, we've got a competitor here. Yeah. Uh, How do we mitigate that? Yeah. You know, I think that's right there. I mean, you've got, a Spanish speaking market that maybe you're not catering to. Right. Um, so I, I think that the idea that in short, yes, I think that they remain competitive in that conversation, but I still think that there is an element needed of being proactive. And if you want to talk about historical, you know, this CBA is, is proactive by nature. It's a five-year deal, right? you know, maybe it's too late, and you could say it's retroactive, whatever, but a reactive, but um, this league, the biggest downfall of this league has always been 
um, a lack of proactive, you know, proactivity, um, always reacting to things. And when you're starting a league, especially the way this started, the history of this league, you know, starting kind of, I mean, not on a whim, but like the night before a gold medal match, a couple of would-be owners say, we're going to start a league. The players have no idea what they're talking about. Sunil Gulati comes in, you know, that I understand that the first few years, you got to get out of those first few years, but by the year seven, eight, nine, to still be kind of reactive, that was a problem. So that mode of thinking has to shift and hopefully it has to be proactive. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I think maybe to cap it, you know, to your point, um, I think it has to do with owner priorities a little bit, the remaining competitive, right? I think that maybe this is the final thing, right? Where ownership, they, they did this one, this one good thing. They got the CBA done and that's great. Um, when you talk about next steps though, right? Uh, yeah. Prioritizing, uh, the, the Latin community and on the, on the team level and at the league level, um, prioritizing using, I mean, again, you have this minimum now, and I think we've seen from angel city specifically, and obviously everybody only has so many international slots and stuff like that, but you can go find really quality players who want to play in the States. And, but that has to be a priority and you have to be building those good relationships and offering things that are competitive to those players. You have to be, like you said, proactive um, instead of relying on sort of this endless stream of, of homegrown talent. Right. Um, So, yeah, I think that I, I am myself cautiously optimistic, but I think this is step. Well, it's not step one, right. It's like step 176 of a million. um, And we're just going to have to take it week by week, but I know that I'm excited to start talking about games, right? Preseason has started. Uh, we have not gotten a lot of preseason rosters. I think we've gotten two as of this recording, Mm -hmm. but, um, we'll have a nice long period of time to sort of dig into some of the team stuff. But, um, yeah, this is a good, good long convo about the CBA. It deserves it. It's a big deal. I have been, uh, your host, Claire Watkins. Thanks so much, Jeff, for joining me. Shout out to our producer extraordinaire, Jacqueline Purdy, and our distributor, Blue Wire Podcasts. And we'll be back next week with, I'm sure, more to come. So stay tuned, everybody.